There you go. There's the text of this topic about the man of God. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. Uh, Sam Ryburn uh, was uh, from 1882 to 1961, served as Speaker of the United States House of Representatives longer than any other person. He came from a poor Texan family. Back in 1900, aged 18, Sam asked his father for permission to go to college and his father told him that he had no money to send him. Sam said, I don't want your money to go, but your permission, and his father gave it to him. Sam tied up all his meagre possessions with a string, for the family couldn't afford a bag, and headed off into the world. As he stood on a remote train station, his father stood quietly beside him. Just as the train drew in, his father thrust a roll of notes into his hand, $25, virtually all the money he had. And as his son climbed onto the train, he gave him his one piece of advice, which became Sam Rayburn's motto for life. Sam, he said, be a man. That's the motto. But by the, by the end of the 21st, by coming into the 21st century, who would know what that meant? What does it mean now to be a man? Why would you say, say to your son, be a man? What would you expect him to be? if he was a man, or not to be if he wasn't a man. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, be a man of courage. Actually, the word is be manly. Now, as we start off on this, this ministry to men, let me start with a general introduction to what is man. For there are so many images that are manliness that are available to us. There's the bodybuilder man. I particularly like the third one. There's the whole need to be tattooed. There, of course, is the beard, an essential complement to uh, every true manly man of these days. Mind you, on the other end of the spectrum, there's the bald, who are also so manly. There's the athlete, that man, uh, who won again the other day. There's the footballer. They look so distinguished, don't they? Especially like the Welshman. Um, there's the soldier. How manly is that? There's the president. Uh, there's the wealthy. There's the leader, who must, by nature, go to leadership conferences and be taught how to be it. <laughs> We need to start then with the Bible's view of man because at that very fundamental level, the world and the Bible are actually in opposition and Christians can get caught between the two. You see, look at the world's understanding. The world starts its understanding by looking at man, not God. In the Enlightenment, Alexander Pope wrote, uh, Know in thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. And the world tries to define and understand man in lots of different ways, but always by studying man. Anthropology is the study of man. There's economic man, psychological man, humanistic man, existential man. Uh, there's, there's any number of ways of understanding what man is. So what's the Bible's understanding of man? 
The Bible describes man in relational terms. The creature of the creator, made in the image of God. Man and woman, that is, husband and wife. Brother, father, son, child, citizen. You can't actually look up the concordance and seek man and come up with a theology of man. You can go to the concordance and look up woman and come up with a theology of woman, but you can't do that with man because man is brother, father, son, child, citizen. And so it's important to explore prayerfully what it means to be a man in terms of the relationships that we have. So let me then turn to a more specific introduction to this talk, that is about contrasting relationships. For relationships usually have two sides to them. There's the comparison and the contrast. We're like each other in this regard, which is why we can relate to each other. We're unlike each other in this regard, which is how we relate to each other. Now, it seems a little negative to emphasise the contrast, but from a definitional point of view, it's the contrast that clarifies the issue. So I'm going to look at, clear the ground a little bit by looking at man contrasted with God, then man contrasted with child, then man contrasted with woman, and then come back to the main heading of the man of God, which is the goal to which the whole talk is heading. See, the fundamental relationship is with God. It's from this relationship that all other relationships make sense and that we learn what it is to be man and how to be man. It's from this relationship that all other relationships are derived. So we start off with a contrast, man contrasted with God. Go to Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The passage lies behind the whole understanding of what we are and who we are. At first glance, you would think of this passage as a passage of comparison rather than contrast in our own image, one of our favourite phrases. But look a little more carefully at the passage and notice from this passage that the first, that we, we are talking here of man the human. Let us make man, let them, so God created man, male and female, he created them. Man is created male and female. For the word man refers not just to masculinity but to the whole of humanity. And in the Bible, as in life, we sometimes can't divorce man from humanity. When God gave Moses the commandments, he told us not to cover our neighbour's wife. He said nothing about coveting our neighbour's husband. For the commandments, as the most of the scriptures, were addressed to the men, the men of Israel. Not, all, not at all meaning that it's okay for the women of Israel to covet their neighbour's husband. Describing Jesus... Saving sinners, Paul writes, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't give himself as a ransom for women, for in this verse, as in many of the Bibles, there's no distinction being made between man and humanity. We contrast God to God as humans, not just as males, females equally human and so the contrast between God and man is a contrast between God and humans. 
Then let's return to our Genesis passage. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and all the earth. For the second observation I'd like to make from this passage is the great contrast that we are the creature, he is the creator. Let us make, are words we rush straight past to get to in our own image. We don't make God, he makes us. We don't own God, he owns us. We don't determine what we will be like, he determines what we will be like. We don't make him for our purposes, he makes us for his purposes. The passage comes towards the end of that massive chapter on God's sovereignty, creating all things by his word, creating out of nothing, making things that are not an extension of himself, but are quite different to himself. And we are part of that creation. I know a special part. We come to that in a moment, but a part. We are like the animals in being creatures. We're not like God in being uncreated. So we don't determine what is man. We don't like the word study man to understand man. That's, that's, that, that's, that, that's the way the world goes. That's not the way we go. We're to listen to God and what he says about man. For he has made us his purposes and he, not we, are to define us. One of feminism's great errors is that in rejecting man's right to define what a woman is, and asserting woman's right to define what a woman is, they've actually rejected God's right to define what a woman is. This is only an expression of the common error of all individuals, that we claim the right to define ourselves, and so reject the sovereign right of the Creator to define us, and the Bible calls that rebellion sin. And so the third observation about the contrast between God and man is that we are sinful. Again, come back to the passage in Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the livestock and over all the creatures. So God created man in his own image. Notice, being a human means to take responsibility for the world, to rule the world, but to do so like God. It's not in our own right, but under God's authority. Here is introduced the great disaster that befalls us in chapter 3 of Genesis. When listening to the voice of his wife instead of God, Adam obediently ate the fruit of disobedience. He ate in defiance of God's determination of how he was to keep and to look after the garden. He rebelled and took us, his children and family, into his rebellion. So creating a huge and seemingly unbridgeable gulf between man and God. A gulf that God has bridged in the incarnation, but more importantly, in the sacrificial death and resurrection of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the proper study of man is Jesus, the man of God. But I get ahead of myself. At this stage, notice the contrast between God and man in our sinfulness. For now, we can't generalise from man as we see him to man as he should be or is created to be or should live, or even what we are, because the only man we can study is sinful man, which is distorted man. But the contrast with God is only one contrast in the Bible. We also see man contrasted uh, with child. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we read... 
in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. That is, being a man is being mature. So in chapter 14, brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Or as T.C. Hammond took it from our King James Version of the Bible, in understanding, be men. It's when you put away the foolishness bound up in a young man's heart and take upon yourself the responsibilities of life. It's when you no longer live under the protection and provisions of your father's house, nor the rules and requirements of it either, but you enter into your independence as an adult member of the community. Then you are a man. Sam, be a man, said Mr Rayburn Sr. as his son climbed onto the train. Or the famous Kipling poem ends, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. But the Bible contrasts man not only with God, and not only with being childish and being a child, but also man is contrasted with woman. There's a clear distinction in the Bible between men and women. So let's turn our focus away from man the human to man the masculine, to man the male. At first glance, there seems to be very few parts of the Bible specifically about man. They're hard to see because they're addressed to men frequently, not as men, but in our, in our relationships to others. And so they're addressed to son or brothers or husbands or fathers. To study the role of women in the Bible requires us to look up women in our concordance, though remembering anything said to humanity as a whole also refers to women. However, when we come to study men, we just can't look up men in the concordance. We have to look up all these other terms, and then that's just a little bit too much effort, so we don't bother. In contrast to women, we come to discover more about what it is to be a man, what manliness is, what masculinity is. And the two characteristics particularly to notice are responsibility and courage. That's not to say that women are irresponsible or that women lack courage. But these are the particular characteristics of men as men. First man, to some degree in contrast to woman, is to be responsible. That's being a man is more than being an adult in contrast to a child, more than being a responsible adult. It's being a responsible male adult. And as such, it involves taking responsibility for more than yourself. It also involves taking responsibility for your household, providing for it, governing it, protecting it, directing it, teaching it. It's the old-fashioned meaning of the word husband. The word husband was not male partner, but a prudent and frugal manager. That's what the word husband means. You can even hear it in animal husbandry. It's being a prudent and frugal manager. My dear friends, please, whatever you do, do not call a spouse a partner. A partner is somebody that you have in tennis or in your business. But in your home, have a husband, have a wife, have a spouse, but not a partner. You see, it's what this sense of responsibility for your household is what Joshua meant in his declaration. For he was to say, as I get it there, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's what his decision is not his decision alone. 
It's for him and his household. Just as Adam's decision was not for him alone, it was for him and his household, of which we are all members, sadly. Men have responsibility for their households. It's not called the sin of Eve, but it's called the sin of Adam. And it's not said, as in Eve, all died, but as in Adam, all died. For God holds Adam responsible. Because as God says in Genesis 3.17, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree. Generally, we want to encourage men to better communication by listening to their wives. But Adam's listening was not a matter of communication, but of submission. The Hebrew phrase to listen to the voice means to, uh, to hearken, to obey, to submit. Instead of gently teaching, correcting or even rebuking his wife, instead of pleading on her behalf to his God and creator for mercy and pardon, Adam accepted his wife's leadership. He hearkened to her. She was deceived, but he was disobedient. He obeyed her rather than God. Because being a man involves this role of responsibility for the provision and protection of his household, a characteristic of manliness then is courage or bravery. Not giving way to fear, but laying down our lives in the protective service of our household. It involves warfare and strength. When Paul wants to challenge the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth to stand firm in the faith, You see how he says it. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. Now the phrase be men of courage is really be men or be manly as the King James Version has it. Quit ye like men. I like it. Uh, Quit's a great word, isn't it? Uh, The English Standard Version just has act like men. Now why does the word Courage come into the NIV then. Courage or bravery. It's because it comes from the very concept of manly. Oh, why is the word manly translated that way then? Well, it's because throughout the Bible, masculinity and manliness has to do with bravery and courage, warfare and fighting. For example, when Israel took the ark into battle against the Philistines, they were initially the Philistines were initially afraid. But the Philistines said to one another, Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Or when David is dying and passing on his kingdom to his son Solomon, he says, I'm about to go the way of all earth, so be strong, show yourself a man. Manly is actually now quite a strange word today, isn't it? It's not the word that we generally see as positive. It's no longer a praiseworthy adjective or a masculine virtue. In Sydney, of course, we have our famous beach suburb of Manly. The first governor of the colony, Sir Arthur Phillip, called it Manly because he was so impressed by, quote, the noble and manly bearing of the indigenous people that were there. On a subsequent visit, one of these manly and noble men of bearing, uh, called Willamering, he speared Governor Philip, uh, who survived the spearing, but he wouldn't punish the manly man for defending his people. He thought it was right. He, he admired the manliness of the man who tried to kill him. So then, why don't we like the British teaching, the Bible's teaching, about manliness? 
Well, there's two reasons that come immediately to mind. Firstly, I said British is because I was thinking of the Governor Philip at that point. <laughs> Not because of their recent cricket success. <laughs> there are two reasons that come immediately to mind. Firstly is because, uh, quite rightly, we don't want to find masculinity in violence. We should be anti-violence people. The man of God is not a man who likes violence. Those who enjoy violence itself are violent men and are morally sick, according to the Bible. So listen to what the scripture says about those who... I wonder if this is going to come up right now. I don't think that's right. Three ways to... I haven't reached that stage in my outline. Listen to what it says. Psalm 140. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Protect me from man of violence. Uh, keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from men of violence. Or let slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down men of violence. At Psalm 140, verses 1, 4, and 11. Or think of the book, uh, book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3.31, do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways. Or 10.11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. Or 13.2, from the fruit of his lips a man enjoys good things, but the unfaithful have a craving for violence. However, not liking, liking violence is quite different to being a pacifist. I used to be a pacifist in my use. I used to justify my pacifism from the Bible, and I was completely wrong. The Bible doesn't teach pacifism. In fact, the Bible keeps calling God the God of hosts, which is a lovely word to use because we don't know what it means, but the Hebrew is completely obvious what it means. He's the God of armies. It's very hard to be a pacifist worshipper of the God of armies. doesn't quite work. Hate violence, yes. Defending the right with justice, defending your family, nation or household is not loving violence, it's being a man. I may add just here, the absolute unthinkability therefore of a man of God entering into domestic violence. A man of violence is not the man of God. You may have to act violently for righteousness sake, but you do not act violently because you're a violent person. That cannot be ever, under any circumstances, right. And my brothers and my sisters, if within your home violence is a factor, then you need to fix it up. And I encourage you to fix it up. Come and see me if you don't know anybody else to go and see, but come and see because actually people who have uh, anger management problems have one of the easiest problems to solve. It's not a really difficult one to solve. There are some psychological problems that you have, which I've noticed, uh, which are very <laughs> difficult to solve. But that actually is one that is not all that hard to solve. But if you don't take action and solve it, you will do untold damage. And worst of all, to the people you're supposed to love the most. The second reason we don't like the Bible's teaching is that it's so politically incorrect. Within the Bible, it's not the role of women or children to rule of the household or to defend the family as warriors in the battle. Listen to how the Bible talks of women in warfare. Isaiah 19.16 In that day the Egyptians will be like women. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. Or Nahum 3.13 Look at your troops. They're all women. 
The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed their bars. Or Jeremiah 50, 37. A sword against her, that is against Babylon's houses and horses and chariots, and all the foreigners in her ranks, they will become women. A sword against her treasures, they will be plundered. Or Jeremiah 51. Babylon's warriors have stopped fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength is exhausted. They've become like women. I uh, looked up uh, today about fear and flight. You might like to Google it up sometime later, not now, uh, about fear and flight. Because of the last 10 years or so, the uh, psychology community, the psychologists have come to see that fear or flight as as a response to anything that is threatening and stressful is actually a male response. And they've now started to discover the female response is quite different. You might like to look it up. But it's one of the differences the psychologists are suddenly seeing that women actually approach conflict in a very different way to the way in which men... Later, not now. Just (laughs) wrote it down now. Later, check it out. Notice how being killed by a woman is such a disgrace. Hurriedly he called to his armour-bearer, Draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died, Judges 9.54. But what about the great women leaders, I suspect you may ask. But that's the very point of the female leadership of women like Deborah. It's not a sign of normality, but of the judgment of God on the sinful nation that it had to be led by a woman instead of by the man whom God had appointed, namely Barak. Though he's a hero of faith in Hebrews 11, Barak is one of the great wimps of the Bible. He wouldn't fight unless he had Deborah holding his hand. Small metaphor there. God had promised him victory, but he was too afraid to go and fight. So instead of him having the enemy Sisera delivered into his hands alive, Sisera was killed by the woman Yael. Remember the tent peg through the uh, temple when he fell asleep. Can I encourage you not to go into Kenite tents? (laughs) Listen to what Deborah says. Very well, Deborah said. I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Notice, because of your cowardice, the victory is by a woman. We may not like this view of men as the warriors, soldiers, protectors, but it's the true of the way of life and death. Remember back, you may not, because of your tender years of age, in the 1990s there was a massacre at Port Arthur. Yes, you do. Good. I'm never sure these days. For me, current affairs is often history for other people. (laughs) But there the seriously deranged man killed 35 people in that shooting frenzy. The newspapers recorded the deaths of the people. And I remember reading a whole big newspaper coverage of each of the deaths and what happened and where it happened and how it happened. And I've written down some of it. Jason Winter, 29, winemaker from New Zealand, working in Hobart, shot dead in cafe, throwing himself in front of his wife and son to shield them. Dennis Lever, 50, jewellery store owner from Redcliffs, on holiday with his wife who survived, shot in cafe after pushing wife under table. Ron Jarry, 71, retired fruit grower from Redcliffs, on holiday with his wife, shot in a cafe while trying to push his wife to safety. 
Peter Nash, 32, painter and decorator from Laverton, Victoria, on holiday with his wife, shot dead as a shielded wife in cafe. Raymond Sharp, 67, from Kilmore in Victoria, on holiday with members of the golf club, shot in cafe while trying to protect his wife. So the list went on and on and on. The only woman who was protecting others and killed was the woman without her husband who had three little children who were killed. In September 11th, a man in particular showed his courage and leadership when you remember Todd Beamer, the fine Christian leader, who with other passengers went and brought down the plane that was heading for the White House. And again we saw just this week these three men stopping the terrorist in that train in France. In the Bible, children and women ruling over men is a sign of the total collapse of the created order, the conquest of sin and the judgment of God. So we read in Isaiah 3.12, Infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, your guides led you astray, they turn you from the path. This understanding of men ruling is reflected in 1 Corinthians 11 where we read, Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, the head of of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And it's reflected in the pastoral responsibility of every husband towards his wife. For if the wife has questions, they should ask their own husbands at home. Well, so far we've been looking at what it means to be a man and to be manly. And this has been all just so as to clear the ground to really look at the man of God. This little phrase, man of God, is used 80 times in the Bible, but only twice in the New Testament. It really is an Old Testament term, and in the Old Testament it always refers to the man, especially set apart by God for God's work, usually the prophet, sometimes the priest, sometimes the king. So Moses is the man of God as is Elijah and Elisha. And unnamed prophets are called the man of God. And Samuel the priest is also the man of God, and King David is also the man of God. But of course, both Samuel and David were also prophets. The man of God is God's appointed leader, specifically doing God's work as God's agent. You as husband or father or head of your household, you in society or in your leadership in the church. Of course, the man of God, above all other humans, was Jesus, the son of man. It seems unlikely to our sensitivities, but the man of God is the warrior. Paul commands Timothy, but you, man of God, fight the good fight. Or again, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Or Paul speaks of himself, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. The hymns of yesterday embarrass us. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armour on. Onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war. It's not just the tunes that embarrass us. It's the very concepts and words that embarrass. There are very few militaristic Choruses or modern songs that we sing in church. I can think of one. And we want to downplay the battle victories of the men of God, of Moses and Joshua, the judges and the kings like David, or the promises that that the nations will be dashed to pieces by the Messiah 
let alone the little ones whose heads. But when we do read of the war, the war that Jesus fought against the enemy of God, we see that he came and conquered not with force of arms and armies, but by his sacrificial death and his subsequent resurrection. He defeated God's enemies, publicly overcoming the powers and principalities of evil. It was a spiritual warfare fought with spiritual weapons. Remember the poor benighted Peter in Gethsemane, not realising the nature of the warfare and therefore brandishing a sword against the temple guards and effectively the whole Roman Empire. Remember Jesus' rebuke in Matthew 26. Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? The war that the God of hosts, the God of armies is waging that we as his men should be engaged in is not with flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms Ephesians 6:12 we're not called upon to fight against humans for the cause of Christ but to fight against the spiritual enemies of God not the symptoms of man's problems but the disease that is destroying the world and therefore, we're not called to take up human weapons to fight the cause of Christ, but to put on the full armour of God, which is truth and righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation and the spirit, prayer. The Christian warrior is not armed as men are armed to wage war against each other in never-ending violence. Our armoury is the spiritual weaponry necessary for the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. But the Christian is at war and is a warrior and is armed and does need courage and will fight. But how? How are we to fight? Well, let me tell you three ways to fight. Three ways to fight as the men of God. Three passages where men are told how to fight. Now I've come to this, haven't I? There we go. Three ways to fight. Firstly, Prayer. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing, is the unfortunate translation of NIV. Uh, every, every translation is bad at some point or other. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.8 is the pits. <laughs> Almost any translation is better than it. I haven't checked out the uh, Jehovah's Witness New World translation, <laughs> but I suspect even it's better. The ESV has it. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. The emphasis is the principal verb, and the principal verb is prayer, not lifting. Men are praying. Men are to pray. It comes in the context of how men are to behave and how women are to behave. Aner and Guner are being used in verse 8 and 9 in contrast. The word men is not the general word anthropos of mankind, but the masculine word for men, males, husbands. 
Not that you can always hang masculinity on one and humanity on the other, but this clearly in this context is men as opposed to women. Prayer is the ministry of men. It's fascinating how when you go into a mixed prayer circles, it's often even usual that the women will lead in prayer and not the men and will lead first in prayer. And how often when we're in churches, we will get women to lead in prayer or even children to lead in prayer. Now, in saying that the ministry of men is prayer, I'm not saying that women shouldn't and couldn't pray. But nowhere in the Bible are they commanded to pray. And this is one of the very few passages of the Bible that addresses men as men. And we are commanded, brothers, to pray. Undeniably, specifically, men as men are commanded to pray. Now, this could be because we have a particular role in leadership in our families and in our church in the exercise of prayer. Or it could be that men need to be told because we are particularly weak in this area of life because dependence on another, which is implicit in prayer, is more difficult for men who are trained to be independent than for children and women who are encouraged to be dependent. But whether it's because of our weakness or whether it's because of our responsibility, prayer has to do with men as warriors, as fighters. For notice the alternative to prayer that is mentioned here in the text. I want men every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. See, the alternative is wrath and dissension, is disputing and quarrelling. What makes hands holy when they're lifted is that they are without wrath and dissension. The important thing to lift is not your hands. The important thing to lift is your holiness in your hands. Do you remember the passage on prayer and prayerlessness in James 4? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. James 4, 1 and 2. You see again, the very male way of dealing with problems, especially economic need and injustice in the distribution of the world's goods, the male way of dealing with these things is to fight, is to quarrel, is to reach out, is to grab, is to use our hands in aggression against others and in greed for ourselves. But not so the man of God. We pray. We pray in unity and in harmony, holding up not violent hands, but holy hands. So the first way the man of God fights, fights for his family, fights spiritually, fights is by prayer. The second way is by holiness. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 3 to 19, nearly the whole chapter. But let me just pick up some of it that's there. The context is again fighting about the possessions of this world and even thinking that we could use godliness as a means for gaining wealth in verse 5 and the constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think godliness is a way to gain. The prosperity gospel is as old as the New Testament and it was heretical then as it is today. In the context of materialistic quarrelling, Timothy is reminded that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, verse 10. And then he's challenged, verse 11, but, but you man of God, one of the two references in the New Testament to the man of God, but you man of God, flee from all this. 
and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, you've got to be a gentle fighter, but you've got to fight. You've got to fight with gentleness. Here's how to fight the good fight. For the word of fighting is drawn here from the conflict of the games, wrestling, contesting, struggling, fighting. This is how we're to do it. A twofold method of verse 11 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Fleeing and pursuing. Fleeing the godless warfare of those in love with money who wander off into all manner of evil. Fleeing, running, escaping, not playing with, not dallying with, not flirting with, not toying with, not... Thinking, dreaming, hoping, longing, planning, but fleeing. Very important for those of you who are going to take your living from the contribution of God's people. Flee the love of money. Flee from the warfare about money. Have nothing to do with the greed that so dominates our society. Flee. How long, says Elijah, will you limp between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And Jesus warns us, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Some people, we're now told, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. But it's a twofold strategy for fighting this battle. It's not just flight, but also pursuit. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Pursue the things of the kingdom of God. Pursue the things of the holy hands that you lift in prayer. Pursue the things of the age to come. Pursue the things that make for peace. Pursue the holiness of life. So in the spiritual warfare that is the battle of God's men today, we're to fight first by praying, secondly by being holy, and the third way in which to fight is the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 is the other reference to the man of God in the New Testament. All Scriptures are God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The word that equips the man of God by teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training him in righteousness is the same word that he must preach, correcting, rebuking, encouraging, and patiently teaching. But this is not for every Christian man. This is for the man of God. This is not every Christian person. This is the man of God. This is the leader. This is the one who is going to fight. And in different contexts, you are the man of God. You may be the man of God in the church. You should be the man of God in your own household. This is the fight, my friends, a real fight. For we prefer peace and quiet to standing up for the truth and contending for the faith. To proclaiming the word of God. It's a fight, all right. Look how Paul continues in chapter 4. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. 
Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul knew it was a fight. He knew the facts of chapter 3, verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He knew of persecutions. He knew of sufferings. This is not the work of the, for the cowardly Adam. And it's not the work for the wimpish Balak. The war of the word of God is to be battled out in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, in our society, at work, in our world. We live in the evil times when people do not want to hear the word of God. We live in the ultimate age of politically correct. You see, even as I prepared this talk, the temptation comes to soften down those parts of the Bible that speak politically incorrectly about the role of men and women in life. We don't really need those verses, do we? There's no point offending half the congregation by saying something which is not absolutely crucially central to what, but it's what the Bible says. Here I am trying to encourage men to be manly and at the same time being tempted not to be a man myself. That's just the nature of the pressure of this world that we are engaged in. It's a spiritual warfare, one within yourself that requires you to be a man of courage. This is a warfare, all right. One that you'll face with every tantrum-ridden four-year-old or your teenager, the willfulness of them, or in the church when you want to plant a new church, or with your friends and relatives when you volunteer for missionary service, or with everyone or anyone when you quit your job to come into college, or when you refuse to compromise your standards at work, or when you decide that part of your family holiday is going to be spent at Beach Mission, or when you tell your sport mad son or daughter that Sunday school is more important than the competition they're in or the representative team that they've just been selected for. It takes a man to be manly. It takes a man of God to fight in prayer, to fight in holiness of life, to fight by the word of God. That's the Christian warrior. Jesus won the battle for us, not by arms, not by swords, spears, shields, bows, arrows, not by force and power, but by his self-sacrificial bravery and courage to go to the cross for us. And he calls us to manliness by denying ourselves, taking up the cross and following him. If you're a follower of Jesus, then the battle you're engaged in is not one for cowards. Not for the follower of fashions of society. Not for the dead dog who can swim with the current. No, the man of God has to swim against the current. And that takes courage. If you're the man of God who will win the battle, not as the warrior using the world's weapons, such a man is a part of the problem, not the solution, but as a man of God, you fight the battle God's way by prayer, by holiness of life, and with the word of God. Hugh Latimer was such a man who taught God's truth when people didn't want to hear it. 
And when the Catholic Queen Mary had him burnt at the stake with his colleague Nicholas Ridley, he cried out, if you remember, be, good of, be of good cheer, Master, uh, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. Play the man. Be manly. Sam, be a man. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. 